Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Be careful, it's royalty-free and doesn't cost you anything. Yes, dear. Hello and welcome to The History of Skipton with me, Ian Lockwood, author of the book, The History of Skipton. I think we've reached an exciting part of the series today, and one which will please those who like medieval history and have been getting in touch. So far, we've been looking at Skipton from about the year 1800, and we've seen how the town developed from an industrial mill town to today's tourist attraction. It's been a story of the ordinary people, how they lived, worked, played and died. But as we embark upon the very start of Skipton's history, we are dealing with the rulers of Skipton. It is necessarily so, because while newspapers, documents and private papers etc. became far more prevalent... It is a fact that for hundreds of years, it was only the people at the top of the social pyramid who left a record. And one theme you might pick up on is that while the people who owned Skipton Castle left their indelible stamp on the town today, they were also witnesses at some of the key events in English history. Magna Carta, Bannockburn, Henry V's French campaigns, the Wars of the Roses, Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries, the Spanish Armada, the English Civil War. Well, in every one of those, you will find the top man in Skipton playing a key role. So let's go back to the very start of Skipton's history. And where better than the Doomsday Book, William the Conqueror's famous record of England in the 1080s, compiled so that he had a register of who owned what in England and how much it was worth. However, there's a problem for us. Skipton is mentioned in the Doomsday Book. It is spelt Skeptun, S-K-E-P-T-U-N. But the Latin entry translates quite simply as, here is waste. In other words, there's nothing worth recording here. Yet a settlement called Skeptun had existed. It formed part of the land of the Anglo-Saxon lord Edwin of Mercia, one of the chief noblemen under King Harold. But when King Harold was killed by William the Conqueror at the Battle of Hastings, the writing was on the wall for the English leaders under the new Norman regime. In 1066, Skipton was an unimportant backwater. 
Edwin's choice of administrative centre for the area had been on the banks of the wharf at Bolton Abbey, probably on the site of the later Priory we know well. Skipton's status was merely that of a Berwick, meaning a large farm, whose role was to supply the main house at Bolton. It would be a settlement of a few households living alongside the beck around Mill Bridge. And providing, probably, sheep to the Berwick at Bolton Abbey. By the time of the Doomsday Book, some 20 years after Hastings, there was nothing of this settlement left. The reason was almost certainly that the small settlement of Skepton had been wiped out by William the Conqueror in his brutal suppression of a northern revolt in which the former Lord Edwin took part. Whole villages were burnt and their inhabitants put to the sword, an action known as the Harrying of the North, and it occurred between 1069 and 1070. Sometime in the last decade of the 11th century, Robert de Romilly, a Norman baron, arrived with his men at Skeptun. Spying a steep crag towering above a beck, he decided that this was an ideal place to build a castle which he needed to control his newly acquired lands. The de Romilies had fought alongside William the Conqueror at the Battle of Hastings. To the victor, the spoils, and the Conqueror's loyal supporters profited well from their service. William distributed his new acquisitions among his followers and brutally suppressed any sign of revolt from the beaten indigenous English. After Edwin had been killed, the Craven area had no direct ruler. It was simply the king's land, with no one in direct control. But that situation did not last long, and Skeptun and large areas around it were handed over to de Romilly, who already owned lands in Gloucester, Dorset and elsewhere in Yorkshire. It was second nature to the Normans to build a fortress from which they could control their newly acquired territory. Skipton had two obvious advantages for de Romilly. Firstly, the Air Valley creates a gap through the Pennines for routes travelling at an east-west axis, axis and for traffic heading from the south up to Lancaster and Carlisle, meaning Skipton was situated at a sensitive strategic point. Secondly, the way Ellerbeck cut through a deep gorge provided a natural defensive strong point. Those factors persuaded de Romilly to build a visible symbol of Norman power. The Norman regime imposed upon England a large web of powerful landowners such as de Romilly. They received their land for, from the king, and in return for exploiting it, they agreed to provide military service whenever and wherever the king so required it. William the Conqueror had died in 1089, by which time Norman rule extended to the River Ribble. The Scots, under their King Malcolm, were dominant beyond the Ribble, and showed signs of causing trouble to the new king, William II, son of the Conqueror. Norman English rule was stronger in the northeast, so the new king was keen to shore up 
the soft underbelly of the northwestern defences against Scotland. He extended the Norman rule into Cumbria and built a castle at Carlisle as the outward bulwark of his defensive system. Behind this, there was a need to provide strongholds of power to control the major routes into the heartland. And one of the chief of these routes, as I've said, was through the Air Gap, the route followed today by the A65 road. De Romilly was seen as the type who could strong-arm the Craven area. So William handed over Skipton to de Romilly in the near certainty that the Baron would create a strong defensive point. De Romilly's status was that of tenant-in-chief, i.e. he held his lands directly from the king rather than sublet them from a more powerful noble. And his land was known as the honour of Skipton, i.e. he had been honoured to receive the land direct from the king. The people who lived on these lands had no rights and were obliged to pay money dues and perform labour service for their lord, de Romilly. They were called villains, which back then had the meaning of low-born rather than lawbreaker. The pressure was on these poor villains living in and around the hamlet of Skipton. De Romilly had to support not just his own family, but also meet his military obligations to the king. He would finance men who would fight for the king in times of war. Not only that, there was the financing and construction of Romilly's new castle to meet. The first castle at Skipton was far from the, the massive stone structure we know today. It was a timber construction, consisting of a large central tower known as a keep. There were two fenced areas, known as baileys. One, the inner bailey, surrounded the keep, and the second, the outer bailey, at a lower level, sheltered other buildings and livestock. To the north and west of Skipton Castle, the steep cliff of Ellerbeck provides a formidable obstacle, but to the south and east, the ground slopes gently away. That is why, early in the 12th century, a V-shaped ditch was constructed with a wooden fence and fighting platform on the castle side. This was situated roughly on the line of the road which we call today the Bailey. The castle and this ditch provided not just a formidable defensive structure to ward off malcontents, but also an area of refuge for the small population of the settlement of Skipton. From here the Norman lords could control access from all the approach roads and collect taxes. We know little of Robert de Romilly, who built the castle. His name lives on as a street name in the town he founded, but he died soon after his castle was completed, leaving just a daughter called Cecily as his heir. She married well to William de Machine, who held land in the area of Copeland in Cumbria and in the Midlands. The couple's two sons both died before them, and it was their daughter, Alice, who took her mother's maiden name, de Romilly, who was to inherit the honour of Skipton and of Copeland, where her father had built a castle at Egremont. 
But these were troubled times for Skipton, and de Romilly's foresight in building a new castle was to prove justified. England's third Norman king, Henry I, died in 1135, and the succession to the English crown was disputed between the king's daughter, Matilda, and his nephew, Stephen. It sparked a civil war, a time when an English chronicler famous remarked that God and his saints slept. While much of the fighting for the English crown took place in the south, the north had its own troubles. The Scottish King David grabbed Alice de Romilly's possessions in Copeland and Skipton was now the frontier, with Stephen and Matilda slugging it out down south. Skipton's timber castle was particularly vulnerable. In 1138, the Scottish King David sent his nephew, William Fitzduncan, southwards with an army to strengthen further the stranglehold he had on the northwest. A skirmish near Clitheroe easily swatted off any English resistance, and the lands around Skipton were plundered. The chronicler Johannes of Hagelstadt recorded, They laid waste the possessions of the monastery called Southerness and the province called Craven with fire and sword. In this work of destruction, no age or rank or sex was spared. Children were butchered before the faces of their parents, husbands in sight of their wives and wives of their husbands. With the rampaging Scots on their doorstop in 1138, the castle would have come into its own. Livestock, grain, valuables and a significant proportion of the local populations would have crowded behind the ditch built a few years earlier. We do not know if Fitzduncan's army marched on Skipton and stormed the castle, although the chronicles imply as much, but there is no conclusive proof. But what did happen was the marriage of Alice de Romilly to the Scottish invader Fitzduncan, a measure of the political reality facing the de Romilly women, with the king's authority virtually non-existent now in the northwest of the country. Skipton was now, in effect, Scottish-owned. And it was to be the furthest south the Scots reached. Turning east... The Scottish army was beaten by northern forces loyal to Stephen at the Battle of, Sta of the Standard near Northallerton. The Scots retreated into Northumberland, but through Fitzduncan's marriage of convenience into the de Romilly family, Skipton remained for some time a sort of checkpoint Charlie between England and Scotland. As late as 1152, 14 years after the marriage, King David is recorded as confirming Fitzduncan as the Lord of the Honour of Skipton. Interestingly, the Scottish king is also recorded as presenting every church in Craven with a silver chalice to atone for the damage they had suffered during the campaign of 1138. For the second half of the 12th century, Skipton almost disappears off the radar. Its castle and control of the town itself 
was in the hands of absentee landlords who were more interested in their primary positions. Fitz Duncan and Alice de Romilly had one son. He was known as the boy of Egremont, and the well-known local folklore has it that he drowned in the Strid, the narrow stretch of the River Wharf above Bolton Abbey, where the water is forced at great speed through a narrow channel between two huge rocks. According to the story, the boy jumped across the channel. But he had his dog on a lead, and the dog dug its heels in, yanking back its master and sending him tumbling into the torrent. So, it was the couple's daughter, Sicily, who became heiress, and she married a, will- a noble known as William Le Gros, which means the fat. William Le Gros had extensive lands in East Yorkshire. It was he who started building Scarborough Castle, and Skipton appears to have been very much a secondary concern. The Scottish influence had also receded, not least because the new king, Henry II, was a powerful empire builder and ferocious warrior who pushed back the Scottish influence. This couple had a single daughter, Hawise, who has found a distinguished marriage with the Earl of Essex. When her father died, his Holderness lands became part of the Essex portfolio, although her mother, Sicily, continued to hold the honour of Skipton under the terms of the will. Now, I know I'm throwing a lot of names at you here, but the important point is that for four generations, no male heir had been produced. The land had passed to daughters, Sicily, Alice, Cecily again, and Hawise. So Skipton and his castle was passed around to the man de Romilly's female descendants married. Hawise's marriage to the Earl of Essex was a short-lived one. He died childless in 1189, and his mother-in-law, Sicily, died very soon afterwards. This left Hawise in possession of all the lands and a highly eligible widow. Still young, and of high blood, her main attraction was the ownership of the large land she brought to any marriage. It seems, though, that she was earmarked by the new king, Richard I, for one of his French cronies. The legends of Robin Hood depict Richard I as the Lionheart, the brave, archetypal English good king, but historians paint a very different picture. They tell of a king who saw England as a giant treasure chest in which to delve to fund his ventures abroad, notably on the Crusades. He was much more interested in his French possessions in southwest France and rarely visited England. One of his naval commanders was a minor noble from Poitou in France called William de Forts. And it was to this crony that King Richard I steered Havis. She resisted. De Forts was of relatively low breed, and the Poitevins were unpopular in England for the obvious favouritism which the king showed them. 
Hawis paid for her stubbornness by being fined by the king, and 1194, the sum of £115, one shilling and fourpence, was paid into the royal exchequer from the sale of her goods. Hawise gave way. The marriage took place. Hawise's new husband may have been unwelcome, but he played an important role in the history of Skipton. The French alien showed considerably more interest in the town and lands in Craven than the previous lords. Indeed, Skipton's wooden castle was now a century old and distinctly old-fashioned. Elsewhere, Clitheroe, for example, huge stone edifices were springing up. Defort could be forgiven if he laughed when he saw Skipton's wooden affair, unless he was in a state of shock. It was of limited use in the new era of warfare, and so it was that William Defort, an obscure naval commander from the middle of France, whose closeness to Richard I had secured him a profitable marriage, started to build the stone castle at Skipton. William de Forts died in 1195, and it was their son, William de Forts II, who continued the construction of the stone castle. But he did not inherit Skipton immediately, as we have not yet finished with Hawise. She was widowed for a second time, and King Richard had a new husband in line. Again, a noble from Poitou, rewarded for his service to the English king. And this time, Hawise seems to have been far less reluctant to marry. Her new husband was Baldwin de Béthune, and the marriage took place in Normandy in 1195, only a few weeks after de Fortz's death. One should not assume that Hoise's marital attractions lay in her sex appeal. The chronicler, Richard of Devise, leaves a description of her and it is none too flattering. He wrote, She was a woman who was almost a man, lacking nothing virile except the virile organs. De Béthune may have continued the work of de Forts, for with the death of Richard and the accession of King John, England's fortunes in France were in sharp decline. De Béthune lost control of his possessions in Poitou and turned his attentions to his English lands. His most significant impact was to secure from the new king, in a decision dated October the 17th, 1203, the right to hold a fair at Skipton for three days over the Feast of Holy Trinity. And today, Skipton Market talks loosely of its ancient right to trade granted under King John, thus referring obliquely to the work of Baldwin de Béthune. Baldwin died in 1212, leaving Hawise a widow for the third time. She was in no mood to be a pawn on the marriage board a fourth time, and in November 1212, contracted to pay the vast sum of 5,000 marks, that's more than 3,000 pounds, in order to have the freedom to control her dowers. A dower is a sum left by a husband for the upkeep of his widow. And she inherited the money. The king, at the top of the feudal system, had the right to demand money from his vassals before they came into any inheritance. 
a sort of medieval version of death duties. And Huise paid two separate sums of £1,000 into the king's coffers. The third and presumably final payment never took place because she died in March 1214. Her land, though, was in the gift of the king, and he refused to allow the son of Hoise and her second husband, de Forts, William de Forts II, to take up his inheritance. It may well be that King John, whose arguments with his noblemen led just a year later to the famous signing of the Magna Carta, saw de Forts as an enemy. But by autumn, a deal had been worked out. De Forts married Aveline, a young, and according to the chronicler Matthew Paris, beautiful woman of relatively low birth. She was a, a royal ward. In other words, King John was her legal guardian. It was alleged that he became much more than a father figure, and it is speculated that she was, in fact, the royal mistress. Having lost the family's French possessions, for de Forts, the key to unlocking his inheritance of Skipton, Holderness in East Yorkshire, Egremont and land in Lincolnshire, was seemingly to marry Aveline, the soiled goods the king now seemed keen to get rid of. The arrangement worked, and thus Skipton passed back into the hands of the de Forts family. William de Forts II was not eternally grateful. Not long afterwards, he was one of those to force King John to sign Magna Carta, and de Forts' signature is one of the 25 at the end of the charter as a witness, and he is one of those charged with ensuring the king kept his word. But de Forts was a keen politician. He switched to the king's side when fighting broke out over observing the terms of Magna Carta and was twice in revolt against the boy king, Henry III, after the death of John. De Forts survived, with his lands intact, but he died en route to Palestine to take part in a crusade in 1242. But for a noble who seemed to play fast and loose with his allegiance to the crown, a strongly fortified castle was essential. And William de Forts II chose Skipton for his main power base, probably because his main castle at Skip Sea in Holderness was destroyed in punishment for that second rebellion against Henry III. De Forts, though, was not long in disgrace, and upon his return to royal favour, he returned to Skipton to build up Skipton Castle. Skipsea, which had been destroyed, was left to flounder. As well as the castle, the town appears to have expanded significantly in this era, with its main wide high street beginning to take the shape we recognise today. Certainly the expansion of the castle in the second quarter of the 13th century under de Forts 
would have required a large workforce of quarrymen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, plasterers, smiths and general labourers swelling the small settlement outside the castle walls. Inside, the castle was in keeping with the main residence of a relatively powerful and wealthy lord. On top of the sheer face of the cliff overlooking Ellerbeck was the main hall, where de Forts, his family and his retainers would have met and eaten together. Beyond it were the private residences of the lord and his wife, Aveline. This is, in a sense, the castle we know today. With walls 11 feet thick and made of good, well-dressed stone, it underlines Skipton's growing importance both economically and strategy, strategically. Skipton in the year 1250 had come a long way from the mean, poor gathering of homes on the banks of Ellerbeck that had existed in 1066. The castle marked the emergence of Skipton as a medieval force to be reckoned with, a key regional power base. The de Fortes had transferred their main seat of power away from Skipsea in Holderness. The family castle there has long since disappeared, leaving just a large mound. And Skipsea's decline was Skipton's gain. The third William de Fortes was to die in 1260, leaving underage heirs. So the castle and land of Skipton fell into the hands of King Henry III in a caretaker capacity until they came of age. But two de Fort's boys died young, and the sole surviving heir was their sister, Aveline, not to be confused with her grandmother, the wife of William de Fort's II. This Aveline was born in 1259. And it's a measure of how high the lords of Skipton were rising that she was married in 1270 to the second of King Henry III's sons, Edmund, known as Edmund Crouchback. Now, this name was probably more because his participation in the crusade allowed him to wear a cross on his back, a corruption of crossback rather than a deformity, such as a hunchback, as some have speculated. This royal connection of Aveline of Skipton to Edmund Crouchback, son of the king, was alas short-lived. Aveline was only 11 at the time of the marriage, and her royal husband went on crusade the following year. It was probably on his return that the couple were handed possession of Skipton in 1274, although it's doubtful that they ever visited the town. For, in the same year, and at the age of 15, Aveline died in childbirth. She was buried in Westminster Abbey, and her effigy can still be seen there today, the earliest surviving likeness of any Skiptonian. The de Fort's line had died out, and after Aveline's death, the de Fort's lands were split up and were in the possession of the king. In 1295, Skipton Castle was used to house 12 Welsh hostages from Edward I's Welsh Wars, and a maintenance allowance 
of four shillings a day was set aside to meet the costs. We know this because the payment was linked to a find in the castle in twelve, sorry, in 1958, when five silver coins dating back to 1285 were found in the bolt holes of one door when renovation work was carried out. In 1307, the castle and its land was rented out to the Earl of Lincoln for 200 marks a year. After the glory years of the defaulties in the 1200s, Skipton was now in a sorry state of decline. No longer a principal residence of a mighty lord, it was neglected and used almost as an afterthought to house safely a royal messenger or as a prison for Welsh hostages. It might have been different had these been turbulent times locally, but King Edward I was a powerful king. Not for nothing was he known as the Hammer of the Scots, and the focus of castle building was in the border areas and in Wales. Skipton and the north were peaceful and therefore could be left relatively unguarded, while military matters were concentrated elsewhere. However, Skipton's fortunes were soon to take a turn for the better, and the castle was to find itself woven into the fabric of English history. Control of the lordship of Skipton was to fall into the hands of men who were very much at the forefront of the political climate. The first was Piers Gaveston, supposedly the homosexual lover of the Prince of Wales, also called Edward. The old king, Edward I, and most of the nobility hated this Gascon knight, who formed an intimate circle with the young prince. Renowned for a skill at jousting tournaments, a sarcastic wit, a condescending manner and overpowering arrogance, Gaveston incurred the king's anger in 1306, when he deserted the English army on a Scottish campaign to take part in a jousting tournament in France. Gaveston was so close to Prince Edward that the two had sworn an oath to share their possessions and always be brothers in arms. The implication was that when he became king, Prince Edward would share government of the country with a foreigner and a relative commoner to boot. Banished and declared a traitor by the king. The prince instead declared Gaveston to be the Count of Pointieu. That sparked a huge family row, culminating with a violent argument in which King Edward grabbed his son Prince Edward by the hair and kicked him repeatedly. Gaveston's banishment from England was short-lived as the king died in July the 1307 and his son ascended to the throne as Edward II. This was the signal for Gaveston to return to England and be showered with gifts, including the earldom of Cornwall, and in 1308, the lordship of Skipton. When Edward II headed to France to marry the French king's daughter, Gaveston was appointed regent to rule England. He was arrogant to the senior English lords, who felt one of them should have been regent due to their experience and high birth. 
The fact that Edward II, on his return from his French wedding, kissed his favourite in public and showed much more interest in him than his new bride underlined rumours of the homosexual nature of their relationship. At the coronation feast, Gaveston wore royal purple rather than the gold set out in protocol, and he spent the evening chatting and joking with the king, while the queen, on the king's other side, was ignored. It is unlikely that Gaveston ever visited his possession, Skipton. Instead, it probably served simply as a cash cow for Gaveston's growing coffers. Profiting from the king's service was no crime, providing you did not step on too many toes. Gaveston did. Worse, he made up nicknames for his noble rivals. The Earl of Warwick was called the Mad Dog of Arden. The Earl of Pembroke was Joseph the Jew. The Earl of Lancaster was called the Churl. The Earl of Lincoln was Mr. Burstbelly. And the Earl of Gloucester, Whore's Son. Having made an enemy of virtually every noble in the country, there was no surprise when Edward was faced with a full-scale rebellion. Led by the Earl of Lancaster, the rebels forced the king to flee and they captured Gaveston. He was in prison for a brief period, but his enemies were in no mood for mercy. He was removed from his prison cell in Warwick Castle, taken out into a field and hacked to death. Thus ended the life of one of the more colourful, if disreputable, of Skipton's lords. After Gaveston's death, Edward II was restored to the throne after promising to take more heed of his nobles. The castle and honour of Skipton was handed over to a nobleman from the Welsh border country. He was to develop the castle further and emerge as one of the most important characters in the troubled reign of Edward II. His descendants were to play major roles in English history and one of them in English literature. And they were to greatly expand the fortunes of Skipton. This nobleman's name was Robert Clifford, and I'll be discussing him in the next episode of the History of Skipton. Thank you for listening. Be careful, it's royalty free and doesn't cost you anything. Yes, dear. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumbo Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumbo Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.